Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Unclean. Against this unpromising background, England's magnates tried hard to establish a lasting political settlement. Parliament met shortly after Gaveston's funeral, and in an attempt to stabilize royal finance and address some of the corruption that was seen to be endemic in central and local government, the barons reimposed the ordinances, purged a number of royal ministers, replaced all the sheriffs in England, ordered the resumption of royal grants, and put pressure on Edward to hear petitions of grievance and complaint from the country at large. In some areas, Lancaster and Warwick appeared to be willing to cooperate with loyalist magnates such as Pembroke and with ministers of the king's household. Cooperation was crucial because various matters of state and foreign policy had to be addressed. King Philip IV had died in 1314 and was succeeded by his son Louis X. A new French king required renewed diplomatic embassies to secure the status of Gascony, the Scots, emboldened by their success at Bannockburn and the deaths of several eminent lords of northern England, including the Earl of Warwick, who died in August 1315, began to raid deep into English territory. Robert Bruce's brother Edward Bruce opened a new front in the war with Scotland when he led an invasion force to Ireland in May 1315. The threats to the borders were magnified by the weather and the famine, which prevented the English from putting an army in the field for any length of time. This in turn put intense pressure on Edward. In a Parliament that met at Lincoln at the beginning of 1316, Lancaster was appointed head of the King's Council, with a mandate to enforce the ordinances and reform the royal administration. Lancaster unfortunately proved just as incapable of consensual governing as his cousin, the enforcement of the ordinances and the principle that the king should be checked and sanctioned by the collective will of the barons were the lens through which he viewed all government. But it was also for Lancaster an end in itself. Despite his bloody-minded insistence on republishing and reconfirming the ordinances, he had very little time either for Westminster or for the business of ruling. Easily slighted and highly suspicious of the king's favourites, whom he believed were plotting to murder him, he preferred to hold his own court in the north, posturing but doing very little in practical terms. The ordinances called for the repeal of royal grants and mandated that future patronage should be confirmed by Parliament. Lancaster's dogmatic insistence on this was a constant reminder of the rift of 1312 and a factor in his growing isolation from the rest of the English earls, several of whom remained deeply angry at the summary fashion in which Gaveston had been murdered. Lancaster's quasi-regency lasted for just a few months. From April 1316 he retreated to his lands in the north, basing himself at Pontefract Castle. In his absence, Edward's new group of favourites grew in prominence and power, and among them the dispensers began to be preeminent. Given the size of Lancaster's retinue and landholdings, he could not fail to be the dominant force in English politics, and his massive landed power in the north made him a critical figure in the Scottish wars. Yet he was unwilling to engage in governance beyond insisting that the king obey the ordinances that he so detested. Edward, for his part, did little to appease his cousin. 
He showered his new favourites, including both dispensers Hugh Audley, Roger Damery and William Montague, with royal grants and patronage, much of it in Wales and the Marches. The lands of the late Earl of Gloucester, who had left no sons when he was killed at Bannockburn, were parcelled up and divided among Dispenser the Younger, Audley and Damery, who had each at various points married one of Gloucester's young heiresses. All five favourites became extremely rich in defiance of the ordinances, which demanded that the king take back past royal grants and have all new ones confirmed in Parliament. Even those moderate barons like Pembroke and Hereford, who did not fawn on the king's person, but supported him out of loyal principle, were placed on lucrative contracts to serve the king in peace and war. Rather than rely on the natural obligation of barons and lords to serve their king out of mutual self-interest, Edward was now effectively paying men to bind them to the crown. He was making kingship a private rather than a public enterprise, creating a culture of ins and outs, and pushing his hostile cousin even deeper into opposition. Crisis deepened throughout 1317. By the summer, when Edward took a sizable army north against the Scots, he found Lancaster gathering his own forces around a rain-lashed pontefract. Under the cloud of impending anarchy, and with the king's authority implicitly undermined by Lancaster and vice versa, disorder began to escalate. In September, Louis Beaumont, bishop-elect of Durham, and two visiting cardinals were held up and robbed by Sir Gilbert Middleton, a knight belonging to the king's household, on their way from Darlington to the bishop's consecration. This event caused severe embarrassment to both sides. Once Edward had returned south, Lancaster's retainers attacked castles belonging to the king's closest supporters. As public authority evaporated, moderate barons like Pembroke and Baddlesmere began to take desperate action to cling to peace. They offered private contracts to Edward's favourites. Roger Damery signed one such contract, in which Pembroke and Baddlesmere promised to defend him from all men, in effect from Lancaster, in exchange for Damery's undertaking not to pester the king for grants of land or anything else that might be prejudicial to the crown. This was desperation. Royal authority could no longer be said to exist, and it was only thanks to the mediations of the English bishops, moderate royal councillors like Pembroke, Hereford, and Baddlesmere, and envoys sent from the Pope, that war did not break out in 1317. During the next three years the circle of favourites around Edward narrowed even further, as he fell ever deeper under the influence of the dispensers, particularly Hugh the Younger, who was appointed Chamberlain to the King's household in 1318, a role that gave him intimate and regular daily access to the King. It was no coincidence that the role had once been held by Gaveston. Dispenser used his special favour with Edward to accrue ever larger portions of the Gloucester estates in South Wales that he had inherited through his wife, and this brought him directly into conflict with other favoured barons, including Roger Damery and Hugh Audley. Edward blithely permitted Dispenser's aggressive pursuit of land, castles, and retained tenants in South Wales, causing relations even among his tight-knit group of favoured friends to become poisoned and volatile. Early in 1318, a tanner from Exeter called John Powderham appeared before the king at Oxford, and claimed that he was in fact Edward I's son, and that the kingdom of England belonged to him by right of blood. He was accusing the king of being a changeling, placed in the royal crib at birth, and offered to fight him in single combat for the crown. Powderham insisted he was the real king of England, and Edward an impostor. The man was clearly deranged, but his story stuck. According to various chronicles, the king was initially amused by the oddness of the claim, and then extremely angry as rumours of Powderham's claims began to spread throughout England. Such was the misery of war, flooding, famine, and political disarray, that the tale of scandal and mistaken identity found an audience entirely willing to believe it. Powderham himself did not last long. Edward thought briefly of keeping him as an amusing fool, but the danger was too great. His parents were summoned for interrogation, and he was tried and hanged at Northampton on July 23rd. During his trial he claimed that his pet cat had become possessed by the devil, and incited him to his crimes. 
the cat was also hanged. But was it possible that Edward was unduly tortured by thoughts of his own legitimacy? At around the same time as Powderham's story was travelling the country, Edward was under the spell of a fraudulent Dominican friar, Nicholas of Wisbeach. Nicholas claimed to own a vial of holy oil that had been given to Archbishop Thomas Becket during his exile in France. Edward began to believe that if he was re-anointed as king with this oil, not only would his political troubles pass, but he would be endowed with the virtue and power to reclaim the Holy Land from the heathen. Eager for a miraculous recovery, he made urgent requests to the Pope in Avignon to be allowed a ceremony of re-anointing. Even when one allows for the superstitious mindset of medieval society, these were weird and wonderful events, which emphasized Edward's brittle political position and his gullibility. In the end, a civil war was averted not through the divine intervention of the holy St. Thomas, but through long and tiring political negotiation with the very real Earl of Lancaster. Matters were resolved in August 1318 with the agreement of a formal peace between the king and his cousin. The Treaty of the Leak established a permanent royal council of sixteen, eight bishops, four earls, and four barons. Lancaster was not a member, and Edward once again agreed to observe the ordinances of 1311. But this was as fragile a peace as any made before it, based as it was on principles that could satisfy neither side. Within four years it had failed. Between 1317 and 1321, England slid unstoppably into civil war. Civil War In May 1321, huge bands of armed men marched and rode through South Wales and the marches. They seized goods, plundered manor-houses, broke down the fences of game-preserves, and slaughtered the animals that ran within them. They murdered or kidnapped servants and guards who tried to stop them. They stole weapons and food and destroyed valuable charters and legal documents. They made off with mares and stallions, cattle and oxen, sheep, swine, wagons, carts and ploughs. They broke into houses and smashed or stole valuable items. Legal records later lamented the loss of a nutwood chessboard with crystal pieces, ivory ornaments, gold religious artifacts, and rich tapestries and clothes. They flew the king's banner of arms, protesting their loyalty to the crown. But these were not Edward's men. They were soldiers loyal to the marcher barons of the Welsh borders, the Earl of Hereford, Roger Mortimer of Chirk, his nephew Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, Hugh Damery, Hugh Audley, Roger Damery, and many others. Many of these men were former allies, but now they did all that they could to destroy the power and possessions of the dispensers, who, like Gaveston before them, were hated almost beyond reason. War, which had been averted for so long by the tireless efforts of England's moderate barons and churchmen, had finally broken out. Edward, once again under the influence of unscrupulous men, had alienated two vastly powerful elements of his country— the northern lords around the Earl of Lancaster, and the marcher lords of the West. In the year leading up to the rebellion, Edward had shown some convincing signs of a capacity for strong kingship. Peace had been made with Lancaster in August 1318, followed in October by a superb victory in the war with Scotland. Forces under the loyalist Earl of Louth had defeated and killed Robert Bruce's brother Edward in Ireland at the Battle of Fahart. This was the most significant military victory of Edward's reign. It removed at a stroke the Bruce effort to throw the Plantagenets out of Ireland and revive a Scottish high kingship of Ireland. It suggested that there was hope in the Scottish wars at large. Then in 1320, the king had visited France to do homage to the new French king Philip V for Pontier and Aquitaine. When it was suggested by the French that he pay personal fealty to his brother-in-law, a move that would have implied a far more subservient relationship than mere homage, Edward stood defiant and gave a vigorous impromptu speech defending the rights of his crown. He told Philip and his counsellors that homage between the kings was done according to the forms of the peace treaties made between our ancestors, after the manner in which they did it. No one can reasonably ask us to do otherwise, 
and we certainly do not intend to do so. Edward's visible anger stunned the French delegation into silence. Moreover, these successes came against a background of seemingly genuine attention to kingship on Edward's part. Queen Isabella had produced a second son, John of Eltham, in 1316, and another daughter, Eleanor of Woodstock, in 1318. Edward was attending to the succession. He was also said to be rising early, paying heed to parliamentary business, and showing clemency in judicial matters. Nevertheless, his rule had slipped into the pattern of domination by favourites, and this time the favourites were not frivolous and arrogant playmates like Piers Gaveston. They were conniving, grasping enemies of the realm. The rise of the dispensers had been steady between 1317 and 1321. They had gradually been accruing power in Wales and the Marches. Dispenser the Younger's power base was made up of lands and castles in the Lordship of Glamorgan, which included Cardiff, Clantrecent, and Carefilly, and its fierce expansion had upset almost all the lords in the region. The Dispensers, and foremost Hugh the Younger, used their proximity to the king to ride roughshod over other lords' landed rights, swooping on territory in the marches and consolidating their already substantial holdings there. This did not merely rile those who found themselves without recourse to royal justice against the dispensers. It offended the marcher lords in general, who saw the traditional laws of the march overridden by a king blatantly favouring one man's private interest over the traditional balance of power in the region. Additionally, the dispensers began playing gatekeeper to the king, controlling access to him by the rest of the barons. The chronicler Adam Murrymuth wrote that no one could talk to Edward without Dispenser the Younger's listening in and replying freely on his behalf. Those who crossed the dispensers were liable to be deprived of land or possessions, or else thrown into prison. In late 1320 the Dowager Countess of Gloucester died, and her Lordship of Gower, which was ruled from Swansea, was contested among the Earl of Hereford, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, and another marcher lord, John de Mowbray. Edward moved to seize it into royal hands and granted it out to Dispenser the Younger. This was an award that was viewed with the utmost hostility by a large band of the marcher lords, including Hereford, Audley, Damery, and Roger de Clifford. It also upset the two Roger Mortimers, of Chirk and of Wigmore, with whom lasting enmity already existed. Edward I's ally, an earlier Roger Mortimer, had helped trap and kill an earlier Hugh Dispenser at the Battle of Evesham. When they complained to the king, he rejected their complaints outright, and Dispenser accused them of treason. In early 1321 the marcher lords took matters into their own hands and began the invasion of the Dispenser estates. War had begun. Between the violent anger of the marcher lords and the general simmering hostility of Lancaster, who in 1321 was building a coalition of northern lords against the king, it was clear that once again Edward had succeeded in uniting the greater part of England's political community against his rule. Even moderate barons like Bartholomew Badlesmere and, briefly, the Earl of Pembroke inclined to the opposition's side. In August 1321, a Parliament at Westminster drew up a list of accusations against both dispensers, and demanded their exile from England by the end of the month. This was ordered on the authority of the earls and barons of the realm, with the assent of Parliament, an authority that the opposition barons claimed overrode a king's resistance. Queen Isabella, who had given birth to the couple's fourth child, a girl named Joanna, at the beginning of July 1321, begged Edward on her knees to give way for the sake of the realm. He did so, and the dispensers were sent away, but Edward did not capitulate happily. As he agreed to his wife's plea, he swore vehemently that within six months he would make such an amend that the whole world would hear of it and tremble. It was with an ominous reference to an ancient part of Plantagenet family history that Archbishop Reynolds of Canterbury summoned an emergency council to meet at St. Paul's in London on December 1, 1321. In the summons he sent to his fellow prelates he stressed the urgency of the cause. The realm, which had once rejoiced in the beauty of peace, he wrote, was now in danger of shipwreck through civil war. Shipwreck 
The same analogy had been used by chroniclers more than a hundred and eighty years previously, when England was torn apart between a pair of cousins in a civil war that lasted for the better part of two decades. Then it had been King Stephen whose authority was challenged by his cousin, the Empress Matilda. Now it was King Edward who risked losing his authority, and perhaps his whole kingdom, to rebels represented by his cousin, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster. The younger dispenser's exile lasted a matter of weeks. At the beginning of October he was recalled to England, where he met the king on the south coast between Portsmouth and Southampton. Edward then struck his first blow of the civil war by besieging his former ally Bartholomew Badlesmere's castle at Leeds in Kent. The king took personal command of the siege, and Edward was therefore directly responsible for executing a number of Badlesmere's men and sending his wife and children to the Tower of London. Edward was not without allies. Despite the dispenser's unpopularity, there were those who feared the consequences of making war on the king more than trying to accommodate him. Among the earls, Edward was supported by his two young half-brothers, Thomas Brotherton, Earl of Norfolk, and Edmund of Woodstock, Earl of Kent, as well as the earls of Pembroke, Richmond, Arundel, and Surrey. Edward also held the command of an elite fighting force of household knights. The opposition, whose members became known as the Contrarians, split along complex lines. They were led by marchers, Hereford, the two Roger Mortimers, Badlesmere, and the former favourites Damery and Audley, and acted with the limited support of the Earl of Lancaster, who held off joining the war until January 1322. Despite their lack of unity, the war began well when they captured the border towns of Gloucester, Bridgenorth, and Worcester in the autumn and winter of 1321. But in early 1322 they were struck a damaging blow. The two Roger Mortimers, who were suffering defections from their armies and attacks from Welsh lords loyal to Edward, surrendered to the king and were sent to the Tower of London. This defection began a process of collapse among the coalition. In February, Morris de Barclay and Hugh Audley the Elder also surrendered. Edward confiscated Barclay Castle from Sir Morris, a decision that would return to haunt him. For all his political stupidity, Edward could be a crafty tactician. As he continued to pick off his opponents, he pushed the marchers deeper and deeper into a state of panic. Suddenly the opposition was scrambling. The Earl of Hereford, Hugh Audley the Younger, and Roger Damery joined forces with the Earl of Lancaster in late January 1322, but by that stage the military initiative lay with the Crown. Edward began attacking Lancaster's castle in February, and successfully took a number of them, including the fortress at Kenilworth, that had played an important role during the 13th century wars against Simon de Montfort. Throughout the campaign Lancaster leaked vital and close supporters. At least ten of his retainers, either unwilling to fight against their king, or else fearful of their fate should Lancaster be defeated, changed sides. Although the marches and the north of England inclined against him, Edward drew valuable support throughout 1321 and 1322 from the native lords of Wales, particularly from Rhys ap Griffith and Griffith Hlwyd. The Welsh lords faced more regular threats from the English marcher barons than they did from the king, and they saw their opportunity in allying with Edward's cause to win valuable territorial gains from their neighbours. Along with the military campaign, Edward was able to launch a brilliant propaganda offensive, in February 1322, treasonable correspondence came to light, proving that Lancaster had been negotiating with the Scots to form an alliance against the English king. The Earl's moral case now collapsed, along with his military defences. Edward had the incriminating letters published all across the country. Orders were sent to the archbishops, bishops, and sheriffs, instructing them to read in public the letters that showed Lancaster's treason, as he lobbied the Scots to invade England in order to further a personal quarrel with the king. It was a fatal blow. Ten days after the letters were published, Edward and the earls loyal to him declared Lancaster a traitor to the realm, and ordered the earls of Kent and Surrey to capture Pontefract Castle. As the Contrarians' war crumbled around them, inside Pontefract Castle panic broke out. There was a furious debate among the barons on whether they should stay and hope to withstand a siege, or attempt to escape north towards Scotland. 
Lancaster himself agreed to abandon his stronghold only when Roger de Clifford threatened him with a sword. The end came at Boroughbridge in Yorkshire. As Lancaster and his allies attempted to make their way to Northumberland, they were intercepted by Sir Andrew Harkley, the warden of Carlisle Castle. Harkley had an army of four thousand men, and they routed the Lancastrian force. The Earl of Hereford was run through with a spear during the fighting. The other nobles, including Lancaster, evaded capture for a few days, but were rounded up as they attempted to flee the region disguised as beggars. On March 21st, Lancaster was transferred from prison in York back to Pontefract Castle, which stood captured by royal forces. He was greeted on arrival by the king, who sneered and insulted him. Then, according to the author of The Life of Edward II, Lancaster was imprisoned in a tower he had had built in anticipation of one day capturing Edward. The following morning he was brought from his cell and charged before a panel of justices that comprised Edward, the two dispensers, the loyal earls, and one professional judge. He was charged one by one with his crimes, and for each charge a particular penalty was awarded, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II. Lancaster was sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and beheaded. In recognition of his royal blood, the hanging and drawing were suspended, but so was Lancaster's right to reply to the charges levelled against him. This is a powerful court, and very great in authority, where no answer is heard nor mitigations admitted, spluttered the earl as his fate was sealed. Without any delay he was led from his own castle and beheaded. It took the axeman two or three blows to sever the head from the body of the greatest nobleman to have been executed in England since the Norman invasion. To some there was a righteous symmetry about his awful fate. The Earl of Lancaster had cut off Piers Gaveston's head, and now by the King's command the Earl of Lancaster had lost his head, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II. Thus, perhaps not unjustly, the Earl received like for like, for as it is written in Holy Scripture, For with the measure that you shall meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. But this was not symmetry. It was a grotesque escalation of the murderous politics of a dysfunctional reign. More barons and earls died violent deaths under Edward II than in the five reigns that preceded his. Lancaster had defied his cousin on countless occasions. He had murdered the king's favourite, made war upon him, and connived with his enemies. But he was still a royal earl. His condemnation and summary execution did not so much right the wrong of Gaveston's death as worsen the crisis of violence and political anarchy that had begun with it. The civil war may have been over, but it was still fair to say that England was shipwrecked. This audiobook is continued on Disc 12. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued Disc 12 The King's Tyranny the Parliament, summoned to York in May 1322, was advertised as an opportunity for a colloquium and tractatum, a chance for the King to discuss and treat with his country. Summonses were sent far and wide. The sink-ports were granted parliamentary representation for the first time in recognition of the fact that they had harboured the dispensers during their exile, while the Principality of Wales was similarly rewarded for assisting in the fight against the marcher lords. Yet despite this new inclusiveness and the language of consultation and peacemaking, Edward used the Parliament for one clear end, to reward and rehabilitate the dispensers, and to formalise the destruction of the late Earl of Lancaster's whole programme of reform. Edward's revenge on the contrarians was nearly merciless. The gibbet in York, visible to everyone who attended Parliament, held the bloated corpses of John de Mowbray, Roger de Clifford, and Jocelyn Deville, all lords of considerable renown and wealth, who were hanged in chains the day after Lancaster died. On April 14th, Bartholomew Baddlesmere, the moderate baron who had been a prominent peacemaker earlier in Edward's reign, was viciously executed in Canterbury. He was dragged through the streets, hanged and beheaded, and his head was placed above the entrance to the city known as the Burgate. More executions followed. Twenty other men were killed for their part in the rebellion against Edward's rule. 
The horror of Edward's revenge shocked the country. Gibbets were erected in London, Windsor, Bristol, Cardiff, and Swansea. The bodies of executed men swung in chains, bloating and decaying for more than two years. Everyone who entered a major town between 1322 and 1324 might have shuddered at the sight of once great men butchered and hung up like hogs. It was not surprising that Roger of Wendover, the author of the Flores Historiarum Chronicle, wrote that the king hated all the magnates with such mad fury that he plotted the complete and permanent overthrow of all the great men of the realm. Perhaps surprisingly under the circumstances, the two Roger Mortimers, the marcher lords who had been involved in the initial attacks on dispenser property, were sentenced to death but had their sentences commuted to life imprisonment. Maurice de Barclay and both Hugh Audley the Younger and the Elder, once loyal lords who had been driven away from the king by hatred of the dispensers, were also imprisoned rather than executed. The Tower of London heaved with well-born prisoners, while contrarians' families were deprived of their lands and properties, or imprisoned in castles across England and Wales. The Parliament convened at York in May 1322 tore up almost all the restrictions that Lancaster and his allies had attempted to impose on the king since 1311. The ordinances were repealed, save six so-called good clauses that were reissued in the Statute of York. The legal processes that had been started against the dispensers prior to the Civil War were halted, and Lancaster's extensive lands began to be taken into royal hands. Various other items of parliamentary business concerning trade regulation and legal procedures were discussed and referred to the Royal Council, but it was clear to all who gathered at York that these were matters incidental to the King's revenge on his enemies. There was a limited programme by which those contrarians who survived the bloodletting could buy back their estates at extortionate prices, but in the main Edward distributed the confiscated possessions to his followers. Andrew Harkley was raised to a new earldom of Carlisle for his part in capturing Lancaster. The loyal earls of Pembroke and Surrey were given manors and lands that either had been confiscated from them by Lancaster in 1318 to 1319, or else were taken from Lancaster's own estates. The Earl of Arundel was given lands confiscated from Roger Mortimer of Chirk, as well as the latter's title of Justice of Wales. The king's half-brother Edmund, Earl of Kent, gained castles in the Midlands and Wales, and Edward's younger son, John of Eltham, although only six years old in August 1322, was given the Lancastrian castle of Tutbury. Most heavily rewarded, unsurprisingly, were the dispensers. The sixty-one-year-old Hugh the Elder was raised to the earldom of Winchester, with five separate grants of land to support his new rank, including the valuable Lordship of Denby in North Wales, which had been stripped from Lancaster. Hugh the Younger, meanwhile, received virtually all the lands, albeit not the title of the Earldom of Gloucester. He was restored to all the estates in Wales, Glamorgan, Cantref Mower and Gower, that had been raided and taken from him in the Civil War, and over the next two years these western landholdings were linked up by the award of lordships in Usk, Iskenon, Brecon, Chepstow, and Pembroke. He was de facto Lord of South Wales, vastly wealthy, with an income of perhaps five thousand pounds a year, and now the trustee of almost unfettered royal power in the West. After 1322 the two dispensers and Edward controlled between them perhaps three-quarters of Wales. If the dispensers prospered, so too did the king. Tens of thousands of pounds of revenue from confiscated lands and fines paid by disgraced nobles now flowed directly into his chamber. The York Parliament granted him taxation amounting to more than forty thousand pounds for a war with the Scots, but a botched invasion in August and September 1322, in which Queen Isabella was almost captured, was swiftly aborted in favour of a thirteen-year truce. More than half the money raised for defending the northern border went unspent, and the coin was sent in large barrels for safekeeping in the Tower of London. More followed from a clerical tax, also supposed to fund a Scottish war. The king took a close personal interest in collecting money, and his coffers filled accordingly. 
the author of The Brute Chronicle reckoned Edward to be the richest king since William the Conqueror. Emboldened by the security of his riches, Edward now became a tyrant. It seemed to the country that he governed in alliance with the Dispensers. The chronicler Thomas de la More wrote afterward that under Edward and the Dispensers, England had three kings at once. The younger Dispenser dominated the highest reaches of the state, sending covering letters with documents sealed by the king, involving himself deeply in affairs of state, and spreading a network of retainers and followers throughout county government. Cruelty was rife. When the Scottish invasion failed, casual vengeance was taken upon a man who had only months previously found himself high in royal favour. When Andrew Harkley, the newly ennobled Earl of Carlisle, was discovered to have opened independent negotiations with Robert Bruce in early 1323, he was hanged, drawn, and quartered as a common traitor. The hero of Boroughbridge was dead within a month of his greatest act of loyalty. All the king's enemies were vulnerable. The Earl of Pembroke, who had been conspicuously loyal between his roles in Gaveston's death and the attacks on the dispensers of 1321, was forced to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, guaranteed by his life, his lands, and his goods. He was broken politically and would die in 1324. Meanwhile, Lancaster's young widow Alice de Lacey had been imprisoned in York Castle along with her mother following the earl's death. The dispensers threatened both women with burning if they did not surrender their estates in exchange for empty honorific titles and a small cash pension. Hundreds of others were affected in this way. Meanwhile, Hugh Dispenser the Younger built himself a hall of regal magnificence in Caerphilly Castle, spending vast sums on master craftsmen and the finest materials. He reveled in his position as the king's most trusted adviser, and his hand appeared everywhere in government. Under his influence, the period between 1322 and 1326 was characterized by grotesque cruelty. The king's harshness has indeed increased so much today that no one, however great or wise, dares to cross the king's will, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II. Parliaments, consultations, and councils decide nothing, for the nobles of the realm, terrified by threats and the penalties inflicted on others, let the king's will have free reign. Thus today will conquers reason, for whatever pleases the king, though lacking in reason, has force of law. Edward had defeated his enemies and enriched the crown, but he had not done anything to strengthen his rule. Indeed, by wielding his office solely in his own and his favourite's interest, he was simply making his overlordship worthless to all those who could not gain access to his justice or protection from his law. For all the magnificence that accrued to him in victory, he was fatally undermining his own reign. Mortimer, Isabella, and Prince Edward On the night of August 1st, 1323, the Tower of London came silently to life. The tower was full of Edward's political prisoners, and chief among them were two men from the marches, Roger Mortimer of Chirk, by now in his mid-sixties, and his nephew, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, who was twenty-six. These one-time contrarians had been imprisoned since they had surrendered to the crown. They had been tried and condemned to death. Both had thus far escaped execution, but with an unpredictable king in the grip of the dispensers, who bore the whole Mortimer dynasty a grudge, they could not hope to live for much longer. The Mortimers had been helpless as their lands in Wales and the marches were parcelled up and awarded to their enemies, but they were determined not to suffer indefinitely. During the months of their imprisonment, the younger Mortimer crafted an escape plan. As darkness fell on the night of August the 1st, the deputy constable of the tower, Gérard d'Alspey, slipped a sleeping draught into the drinks of the constable and the Mortimer's guards. Then he hurried to Roger Mortimer of Wigmore's cell, unlocked the door, and led the knight through the castle kitchens and onto the tower's southern wall. Once at the top of the wall, the two men unfurled a rope ladder. It rolled quietly down against the sheer stone toward the river Thames directly below them, where several co-conspirators were waiting in a boat. Mortimer and Dalspey slid down the ladder, 
climbed into their escape vessel, rowed across to the south bank of the river, and escaped on horseback to the south coast of England. Mortimer put to sea at Porchester, and within days had taken refuge in France. It was a brilliantly realized escape, and it threw Edward's court into a state of paranoia. An inveterate opponent of the king had fled from what was supposed to be the most secure fortress in the realm. Rumours reached the royal household that this was part of a wider conspiracy to seize royal castles, and even to send assassins to murder Edward and the dispensers. From the autumn of 1323 onward, spies across the continent began to send reports back of plots and invasion attempts involving Mortimer. A devastating chain of events had begun. Mortimer was welcomed to France by a new king. Charles IV had succeeded his brother Philip V in January 1322, becoming the fifth ruler in the seven years since Philip IV had died in 1314. Like all new French kings, he was eager to show the kings of England that he regarded their claims to the Duchy of Gascony with a suspicion that bordered on hostility. When a violent dispute broke out over a French Bastide, fortified town built on English territory at Saint-Sardot in the Agenais, Charles used the ensuing quarrel as a pretext for an invasion of Gascony. The earls of Kent and Pembroke were sent to protest, and were dismissed haughtily. Charles wanted to discomfit the English as much as possible. In August 1324 he moved thousands of troops to the borders of the duchy, and began to besiege its major towns. Almost in a blink, England and France were once again at war. Back in England, the outbreak of war put Edward in a painful bind that exposed precisely why his aggressive, divisive approach to kingship could only lead to ruin. He could not trust his own subjects to obey his rule, for other than a small band of handsomely rewarded favourites, he had never given them reason to do so. He could and did arrest all Frenchmen in England and confiscate all lands held by French citizens, including the Queen. But when he began to make plans to lead an army to Gascony in person, he faced a dilemma. Were he to leave England with an invasion force, he would have to take with him most of the officials and magnates who were still loyal to him and trust in the regency of his eleven-year-old son and heir, Edward Earl of Chester. That would leave England highly vulnerable to plots, rebellions, and invasion. If he left the dispensers behind him to keep order, he risked losing them the way he had lost Gaveston. Furthermore, he feared rumours of Roger Mortimer's plotting on the continent, and imagined that either he or the dispensers could be kidnapped if they happened across Mortimer's agents overseas. Rather than cross the Channel, Edward sent more envoys to negotiate for peace. In the first instance he sent an embassy led by the bishops of Winchester and Norwich, the Earl of Richmond and Henry de Beaumont. When this failed, a diplomat of altogether higher status was sent, Queen Isabella. Both her two eldest brothers had been crowned King of France, Charles IV was the third and last. She had long enjoyed close links with her family, despite her involvement in the Tour de Nel scandal of 1314, in which Charles's wife Blanche had been imprisoned for adultery and her alleged lover beaten to death in public. If anyone could appeal to Charles to end his aggression, reasoned Edward and the dispensers, it was his sister. It proved to be a fatal decision. Although she had been staunchly loyal to her husband during the convulsions of his reign, the Queen had been rewarded with little more than the same humiliation that she had suffered as an adolescent, when she was sidelined by Gaveston at her own coronation. She had been made to suffer roundly when war broke out, her lands had been confiscated, her servants exiled or imprisoned, and her maintenance payments from the king reduced and diverted via the younger dispenser. She had written furiously to her brother Charles, complaining that she was treated like a maidservant. On top of that, dispenser's wife, Eleanor de Clare, was detailed to spy on Isabella's correspondence. The queen had borne all this with public dignity, but she was clearly simmering with rage. The Queen departed very joyfully, wrote the author of The Life of Edward II. She was pleased, in fact, to visit her native land and her relatives, pleased to leave the company of some whom she did not like. This was something of an understatement. Isabella could not leave the dispensers and her weak, unpleasant husband quickly enough. 
A joyful reunion between the English Queen and her brother took place at the end of March, and Isabella made her ceremonial entry into Paris on April 1, 1325, dressed in a black riding habit, checkered black boots, and a golden headdress. Her negotiating skills proved no more successful than any other English diplomats, but she did her duty and extended the fragile truce that held in Gascony. With her work done, she ought to have returned to England, but Isabella had no such intention. She spent the summer of 1325 in France, touring her brother's properties, and waiting for her husband to make his long-awaited journey to France to pay homage to the French king at Beauvais. She waited and waited, but Edward would not and could not be tempted from England. He could neither leave his kingdom nor be separated from the dispensers, and the prospect in any case of a demeaning ceremony at which he had to humble himself before the younger French king was hardly appealing. In the end the two sides compromised. It was agreed that young Edward of Windsor should be sent in his father's place. He would be granted Pontieu and Aquitaine in his own right, and would then travel to France to pay homage to the king in person. This solution looked good to Edward II, but it looked even better to Isabella. Her son, now twelve years old, having been appointed Duke of Aquitaine by his father, arrived in mid-September 1325 and paid homage for his new lands in a ceremony at Vincennes. With the crisis satisfactorily ended, Isabella and her son were expected to make a prompt return to England, but they adamantly refused to return to the troubled kingdom. In late November, Isabella wrote to her husband explaining with venom the hatred and contempt in which she held the dispensers, and stating in bald terms her refusal to return. The author of The Life of Edward II reported the contents of her letter. I feel that marriage is a joining of a man and woman holding fast to the practice of a life together, wrote Isabella. But someone has come between my husband and myself, and is trying to break the bond. I declare that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but discarding my marriage garment, shall put on the robes of widowhood and mourning, until I am avenged of this Pharisee. It is more likely here that the Queen referred to Dispenser the Younger's intrusion into the political dimension of her marriage, rather than complained about a sexual liaison between Edward and Dispenser. In any case, Isabella stayed in France with her brother's satisfied support, taunting the King of England who had so abused her, and drawing around her a coalition of disaffected English nobles and prelates. True to her word, she wore the black robes of mourning and a veil over her face. It was a powerful political statement of the injustice she had suffered, and the rotten condition of the country from which she had exiled herself. In England Edward raged. He wrote furious letters to his wife, and instructed all the leading bishops of England to do the same, telling Isabella that her absence roused fears of a French invasion of England, and accusing her of wishing to destroy a people so devoted to you for the hatred of one man but Isabella's heart was unmoved. She held his heir, and she was protected by her brother, the King of France, and she was about to make her extraordinary position even more distressing to her husband. As 1325 drew to a close, Isabella committed what to Edward was the ultimate sacrilege. She allied herself with the fugitive Roger Mortimer of Wigmore. Endgame the crossing from the Low Countries to England was rough. Storms blew up around the fleet of ninety-five ships, and they were tossed by powerful winds and violent waves as they made the journey toward the Essex coastline. For two days the fleet was scattered, but around midday on September 24, 1326, it was in sight of shore. The fleet dropped anchor in the mouth of the Orwell on the Suffolk coast, and unloaded its cargo in haste. As each vessel was emptied of its men, horses, and supplies, it put swiftly back to sea and returned to the continent. The army that landed in the small East Anglian port was small. At its centre were seven hundred Dutch and German mercenaries. With them came a party of English exiles, who included noble veterans of the Battle of Boroughbridge, refugees from the harsh royal revenge that followed, and a number of prominent magnates who had left England during the tyranny of the Dispensers and never returned. They included the king's half-brother Edmund, Earl of Kent, 
and John of Brittany, Earl of Richmond, two men who had been almost unwaveringly loyal throughout Edward's reign, but who now at last had joined the opposition. The leaders of the invasion were Queen Isabella of England, Roger Mortimer of Wigmore, and the heir to the English throne, Edward, Earl of Chester and Duke of Aquitaine. The exiles had finally returned to England. But they did not come in sorrow and humble apology. They came to rid the country of the king and his favourites forever. Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer made an odd and scandalous couple. They met around Christmas 1325, and within weeks Isabella had taken Mortimer as her lover. Shortly afterward the couple began to live together quite openly, and they had appeared in public as a couple by May 1326, when Mortimer carried Prince Edward's robes at the coronation of Charles IV's third wife, Jeanne d'Evreux. Charles's first wife, Blanche of Burgundy, had been imprisoned for her alleged adultery in the Tour de Nel affair, and her marriage had been annulled. His second wife, Marie of Luxembourg, had been killed in a carriage accident in 1324. Edward II had heard about his wife's betrayal by February 1326, when he stated angrily, "'The Queen will not come to the King, nor permit his son to return, and the King understands that she is adopting the counsel of the Mortimer, the King's notorious enemy and rebel.' Edward put pressure on Pope John XXII to censure the French King for harbouring an adulterous couple, and Charles, under threat of excommunication, was obliged to order Isabella and Mortimer to leave France. Mortimer spent his time on the continent establishing a network of allies, and the couple found a safe haven in the county of Hainaut in the Low Countries, where the Count was sweetened by the betrothal of the young Edward to his daughter, Philippa. The support of the Hainaut enabled Isabella and Mortimer to raise their invasion force. The paranoia of Edward II and the dispensers had allowed them to land in safety. England was on a defensive footing, but it was marshalled against the wrong invasion. Edward was convinced that Charles IV was going to invade the south coast from Normandy. He was mistaken. Charles had no such intention. When news reached London that Isabella and Mortimer had landed on the east coast, Edward was dining in the Tower of London with the younger dispenser. He was dismayed. The size of the force reported in Suffolk, probably no more than fifteen hundred men in total, was tiny. But the king rightly concluded that this meant the bulk of his enemies were already inside England. Alas, alas, the brute chronicle has him exclaim, we be all betrayed, for certain with so little power she had never come to land, but folk of this country have consented. Like King John before him, Edward's violent paranoia had bred real treachery. As news of Isabella and Mortimer's arrival spread throughout England, supporters flocked to her side. The Anonymal Chronicler preserved an open letter written in French to the citizens of London, which proclaimed that the Queen came, "'With good intent for the honour and profit of the Holy Church, and of our very dear Lord the King, and to uphold and safeguard all the realm.' She offered a reward to any citizen who could help her destroy Sir Hugh Dispenser, our enemy and all the realms, as well you know. Copies of the letter were fixed to windows, and the sealed original was pinned on the Eleanor Cross at Cheapside in London, a highly symbolic location for a queen's propaganda. Isabella was claiming the inheritance of the old king and his beloved queen, and she found a willing audience. The Londoners rose in revolt on October 15th. They dragged John Marshall, a close ally of the young dispenser, from his house and beheaded him on Cheapside, the great thoroughfare through London. The Bishop of Exeter, a former royal treasurer, was discovered seeking sanctuary in the porch of St. Paul's. Although he rode in full armour, he was dragged from his horse as he neared the north gate of the cathedral, and taken to Cheapside, where the mutilated and bloody body of Marshall lay prone on the ground. The bishop's armour was wrenched from his body, and his head was cut off with a bread-knife. Two of his attendants were also murdered. Anarchy reigned. Every supporter of the realm, whether bishop, earl, judge, or lowly servant, began to flee for his life. Members of Edward's favourite monastic order, the Dominicans, disappeared into hiding. Offices connected with the dispenser regime and those who served it were plundered, burned, and smashed. 
The plaque erected by Thomas Earl of Lancaster to commemorate the 1311 ordinances was put up again in St. Paul's for the first time since the Earl's death. Meanwhile Isabella was moving west. Edward and the Dispensers had fled the Tower of London almost as soon as they learned of her arrival, and headed for their power base in Wales, which had stood firm during the Civil War of 1321-1322. They sent word ahead to their old allies, Reesap Griffith and Griffith Lewitt, to raise troops for the cause. With almost thirty thousand pounds to his name, the king was certainly rich enough to pay a large army to defend him. By late October, Edward and the younger dispenser were in Chepstow, on the western bank of the Severn Estuary, while the Earl of Winchester, the elder dispenser, was barricaded in Bristol Castle. The Queen and Mortimer gave steady pursuit, and were at Gloucester by the time the Bishop of Exeter's head arrived for Isabella's inspection. As they moved through England, magnates gathered to their side. The king's other half-brother Thomas of Brotherton, Earl of Norfolk, joined their company, as did Henry of Lancaster, Earl of Leicester, the younger brother of the late Thomas, Earl of Lancaster. On October 18th Bristol Castle was besieged by Lancastrian forces. The Earl of Winchester tried frantically to bargain for his life, but neither Mortimer nor Henry of Lancaster was in any mood to spare a dispenser. After eight days of siege their army stormed Bristol Castle, and Winchester was brought out in chains. While Bristol Castle lay under siege, Edward and the younger dispenser decided that their best chance of survival lay in fleeing to Ireland. With a small party of men-at-arms they boarded a ship at Chepstow, but the wind was against them. Desperate prayers from a friar brought no succour, and after five days spent battling the angry sea, the royal party was forced to put ashore at Cardiff and flee for the grandly rebuilt and supposedly impregnable dispenser castle at Caerphilly. As they were doing so, Isabella and Mortimer issued a statement at Bristol, arguing that inasmuch as the king had left the realm, his son Edward should take control of government. The statement, preserved on the close rolls, cited the assent of prelates and barons, including the Archbishop of Dublin, the bishops of Winchester, Ely, Lincoln, Hereford and Norwich, the king's two half-brothers, Henry of Lancaster, and other barons and knights then at Bristol. According to the statement, Duke Edward was chosen to lead the country, with the assent of the whole community of the realm there present, that the said duke and keeper should rule and govern the realm in the name and right of the king his father. The king was stripped of his authority, and it was given, albeit temporarily, to a fourteen-year-old boy entirely under the sway of the queen and her lover. He assumed his responsibilities on October 26th. The following day the elder dispenser was brought before a court headed by Sir William Trussell, and deliberately styled on that which had convicted Thomas Earl of Lancaster. He was charged with robbery, treason, and crimes against the Church, and told that because in convicting Lancaster he had constituted a court that did not recognize a defendant's right to reply, he would be treated in the same way. The cycle of quasi-judicial violence continued. Dispenser was hanged, drawn, quartered, and beheaded on the public scaffold at Bristol. His head was sent to Winchester to be displayed in public. To all around Edward it was clear that the game was up. Dispenser's tenants in his Welsh lands bore him no love, and refused to turn out to defend him. On October 31st the king's household deserted, leaving Edward and his favourite with a few retainers to protect them. The king's actions grew increasingly panicked and desperate. He might have remained in Caerphilly a long time, for the castle was stoutly defended and well stocked. He had vast reserves of cash and jewels, as well as the great seal, the privy seal, and other appurtenances of government. But in early November Edward and Dispenser left for the Cistercian abbeys at Margam and Neath. At Neath they discovered that a manhunt was under way, led by Henry of Lancaster and a group of barons seeking personal revenge for wrongs they or their families had suffered during or since the Civil War. The king, dispenser, and the royal chancellor Robert Baldock attempted to flee, probably along a high mountain path toward the castle of Hlantresant. On the road they encountered the search party, which eventually captured the king and his remaining adherents as they cowered in a wood.
On November 24th, the whole population of the town of Hereford assembled in the market square. Before them sat a now-familiar form of court, headed by Sir William Trussell, the man who had sent the elder dispenser Earl of Winchester to the gallows less than a month previously. Before the court stood Hugh Dispenser the Younger, a dishevelled and sorry shadow of the man who had ruled England through the king. He had been brought to the town earlier in the day to the sound of drums and trumpets. A large crowd had gathered to see the fallen favourite arrive, and they bayed and cheered as he approached on horseback, a crown of nettles on his head to symbolise his crime of accroaching royal power, and his arms reversed on his tunic to proclaim his treachery. The front of his tunic bore a Latin verse from the New Testament, Quid gloriaris in malicia qui potens est in iniquitate? Why do you glory in malice, you who are mighty in iniquity? For almost a week before his transfer to Hereford, the captive had been attempting to starve himself to death, but he was allowed no such easy fate. The crowd dragged him to the ground, stripped off his clothes, and scrawled biblical slogans on his skin. Then he was hauled before the court. It was certain that the defendant would die, and that he would die without the right to speak in his own favour. The Earl of Arundel had been beheaded in Hereford a week previously, and there was no question that the king's favourite would join him in that fate. Dispenser's crimes were read out to the court. The list was exhaustingly long, and included breaking the terms of exile, breaching the Magna Carta and the ordinances of 1311, killing, imprisoning, and tyrannising the great and good of the realm, causing the king to 